So what follows will be an audio version of an article I wrote in March of 2021 titled The Interrogation. Just to let you know, it is now January of 2022. I've been through more interviews and interrogations. I've been to more classes. I've read more books. And my thoughts have changed somewhat. Um, this is an article that I've already written. And since I think it captures where I was at at the time, and I think it's still good information, I'm going to read it to you as it is. And just be aware that uh, this was from March of 2021, and my thoughts are still changing. But with that being said, this is an audio version of the interrogation. First of all, I want to be very clear that I owe a huge debt to the read technique and its teachers. Their book was required reading for my promotional exam. I've been to several of their classes. I don't work for them, though. Some of the terms I use, like direct positive confrontation, originate with them as far as I know. As far as I'm concerned, if you have to choose one style of interrogation, use the read technique. There are multiple different interview techniques out there. There's somebody that will tell you this one is great and that one is horrible. I like to think of it like old kung fu movies where the different styles square off against one another, all claiming to be the best. I don't know what style is best, but I believe that if you choose one and stick with it, you'll be far better off than never training at all. Any training is better than no training. So that being said, what I am offering is not a new technique, but a look into the practical application of established techniques. Once this article is posted, future postings will explore individual topics more in depth. These first articles are the framework. If you don't go any deeper into the subject of interview and interrogation, I believe that these articles give you a crash course on how to interview and interrogate. So let's get to it. Your interrogation should follow a basic pattern. It will look like this. 1. Accuse the suspect of doing the crime. Direct positive confrontation. 2. Monologue and theme presentation. 3. Shutting down denials. 4. Rewarding objections. 5. More monologue. 6. Alternative question, leading question. 7. Reward admissions and look for more. And 8. Develop admissions into a confession. Note, after step 6, if your subject is still in denial, go right back to step 1 and do it all over again. If that doesn't work, choose a different theme, go back to step 1, and do it all over again. I'm going to give you a sample accusation and monologue. If you feel overwhelmed or not ready to interrogate, I want you to take this or part of this and say it to your suspect. Say it word for word if you want. Practice it while you drive in the car. Don't soften it. Don't overthink it. I'm not going to tell you this is the best monologue in the world. What I'm telling you is that it does not have to be the best monologue in the world. If it's in the brackets, fill in your particular details. Scenario 1. Aggravated sexual assault of a child. Look, Greg, my investigation is complete. There is no doubt that you put your penis in Amy's vagina. The reason I'm here to talk to you, though, is to find out the reason why this happened. I've been doing these investigations for a long time. and What I've discovered is that every single person I've investigated is more complicated than their accusers make them out to be. Greg. I didn't touch her. Yes, you did, and you need to hear me out. The unfortunate truth in my line of work is that you spend all of your time listening to the accusers before you even get in touch with the person they were talking about. No matter who you are, if you only hear the accusers talk, you're going to start to wonder about the person that's been accused. Are they a pedophile, or are they just somebody that made a mistake? And isn't that an important difference? People can understand that you made a mistake, but they can't wrap their heads around a potential pedophile. Pedophiles do exist. I talk to them all the time. A pedophile is a person that is exclusively attracted to prepubescent children. Well, look at you. You have a wife. You have kids. I'm sure you have girlfriends in your past that would testify to you being attracted to grown women. You're not a pedophile. 
I'm not even interested in sex. I think I might be asexual. I'm glad you brought that up, Greg. A lot of the people I talk to have a very complicated relationship with their sexuality. In my experience, that complicated relationship leads to a lot of doubt. It also leads people to explore into the unusual. So as I, I investigated this case, I asked myself, why did Greg put his penis in Amy's vagina? After a lot of thinking, I believe that it happened because Amy provoked you. In my experience, little girls of all ages play big girl games before they really understand what they are doing. Sometimes it puts grown men in bad situations that they wouldn't have been in otherwise. Maybe she was being playful and came into the bedroom while you were naked and started grinding on you. In that moment, you were curious. That's when these things happen. They happen when curiosity meets opportunity. Are you this monster that snatches little girls up and terrifies them as he violently rapes them? That's the kind of guy that plans his attacks for maximum horrific impact on their victims. That's the type of person I have to talk to in these rooms. But I wish I didn't. I don't want anything to do with them. Or are you the guy that's gentle and curious? When that combination happened where opportunity met curiosity, you acted out and made a mistake. It was a mistake when your penis went name you, right? Yeah, it was a mistake. Good, and I knew that. I'm really relieved that you're that type of person, Greg. We all make mistakes. Show me the person that hasn't made mistakes. You know, I read a book one time about forgiveness. That book said that there were three essential steps to forgiveness. One, you have to admit that you were wrong. Two, you have to say that you were sorry. Three, you have to distance yourself from those actions and say that they won't happen again. That's what I want to see from you, Greg. I can see that you want to get there. I believe in you. Now I have to ask you because it's going to be important to show that you are this person that made a mistake and not that awful monster. Did you put your penis in Amy's vagina on more than 10 occasions or less than 10 occasions? It was less than 10 occasions, wasn't it? Okay, let's break that interrogation sequence down. First of all, it starts with a direct accusation. That is the bedrock of an interrogation. The first time I ever interrogated a guy, I was accusing him of robbery. I show other detectives the video all the time. You can see that I'm nervous, I'm short of breath, I fumble my words, but I stick with the program. I told that guy that there was no doubt he hit that man and took his phones, also known as robbed him, and I watched the suspect nod. I thought he was going to try and hit me, not agree with me. I sat down and delivered him a monologue and a theme, and I got a confession. Anybody can do this. Start with a direct positive confrontation. If you are new, you can literally take that first paragraph and use it over and over to get started. The reason we want to talk to them is always to find out the reason why. There's no doubt you did it, and we just need to figure out the reason why. Although it doesn't always happen, expect a denial at some point. When you hear it, you have two main options. Ignore it, or just say, yeah, you did, and move on. If they are vocally denying the accusations, they are going to try and pull you into a debate. There is no debate at this point. You are going to verbally steamroll them. Keep going. Next, I use a lot of filler words. It almost doesn't matter what I'm actually saying. I'll talk about my experience or how many experts I talk to. Sometimes I talk about how worried I've been that somebody might misunderstand them. My theory on this is that guilty people will let you talk with very little challenge. You just accuse the suspect of something heinous. Why would an innocent person let you keep talking about half-related things? Another thing this does is give you some time to come down from the anxiety of confronting a person in the way that you just did. As I go on, though, I'm starting to introduce some concepts that I'll work with later. For child sex abuse cases, I'll talk about how pedophiles are really rare, and I'm sure that's not them. I'll introduce them to the idea of curiosity meeting opportunity. 
I'll introduce them to the idea of having possibly just been somebody that made a mistake. Think of this part as being a chef and you're getting your ingredients out. I often don't know exactly how it's going to all mix together, but I want them out where I can see them. When I get deeper into my themes and alternative questions, I'll throw in some dashes of curiosity, opportunity, and some dabs of mistakes. It can be hard to talk to people with a straight face about morally reprehensible topics like they aren't a big deal. Telling a child rapist that the kid probably came on to them is gross, but you have to do it. If you don't feel comfortable with extemporaneous speech, pick a couple of these concepts and try to force yourself to talk about them while you're alone. Pick a terrible subject and try to argue why it is good. Pick a good subject and try to argue why it is bad. Try to sound as convincing as possible. I arrested a guy for sexual assault of a child that was known to have engaged in bestiality with neighborhood dogs. He was a juvenile, so I didn't get a chance to interrogate him, but I guarantee you I would have looked at him with kind eyes while I delivered a speech on why bestiality was no big deal. I've minimized some terrible criminal acts all the while waiting for the person to call me a pervert. I'm constantly surprised at the evident distorted thinking on the part of a suspect that allows them to commit these acts. Do not ever assume that you understand the moral code of a person that sexually abuses children. Obviously, you should not tell a suspect that the crime they committed was good. That could be seen as either legally excusing them or shocking the conscience. In an interview room, you can morally excuse a subject, but you cannot say things that appear to legally excuse the suspect. Trust me, if you offer a suspect an out that legally excuses them, they will take it. When I talk about arguing how good things are bad and bad things are good, I'm advocating for you to gain proficiency in presenting gross ideas in ways that don't betray how you really feel. If the suspect feels that you are judging them, you aren't getting anywhere. Once you get repetitions under your belt, you will start to see what works and what doesn't. You'll use some of your ingredients in every interrogation while others get used less and less. I learn new things every time I do one and every time I watch one. Greg claims to be asexual. Notice that this is an objection. An objection is when a suspect tells you some sort of reason that an accusation can't be true. It is not a denial. A denial is, I didn't do it. An objection is, I'm a good Christian. I love my wife too much. I don't even get erections anymore. So Greg here claims to be asexual. This is an objection. The thing to do with objections is to praise them and work them in. If you stop and argue with them, they've won. When you use it without ever stopping, they lose perhaps their last defense. My theme in this sample interrogation is blame the victim. If you work in child abuse, you'll understand. If you don't, you'll think I'm an awful person. I have found that there is no age too young for a sex offender to blame. I once had a 41-year-old male tell me that a 4-year-old child yanked his pants down, pulled his penis out, and rubbed it in her vagina. I couldn't believe it when I heard it. Remember, the reason the suspect sexually assaulted a young child is because he's into it. Simple as that. When they have to tell somebody about it, though, anything, including blaming the victim, is better than their actual reason. Next, we get into the alternative question. With child sex abuse cases, it's pretty much, are you this monster or are you this other guy? I came up with the alternative there for the first time as I was typing this out, and I think it's a really good one. Are you this monster trying to terrify a child, or are you this gentle and curious guy? Here's that alternative question followed by a leading question so you don't have to scroll up. Are you this monster that snatches little girls up and terrifies them as he violently rapes them? That's the kind of guy that plans his attacks for maximum horrific impact on their victims. That's the type of person I have to talk to in these rooms, but I wish I didn't. I don't want anything to do with them. Or are you the guy that's gentle and curious? When that combination happened, where opportunity met curiosity, you acted out and made a mistake. 
It was a mistake when your penis went in anger, right? Important. Always finish your alternative questions with a leading question. If you don't ask the leading question, your alternative question is incomplete. The leading question can be answered with a single word. You want to make that word yes. The leading question there is, it was a mistake when your penis went in Amy, right? I will say that it would be possible to dial it back and make your leading question, it was a mistake when you went that far with Amy, right? The positive to the softer question is maybe less inhibitions about answering. The negative is that it doesn't actually establish a crime. Either will work, but be clear on what you're doing. If you get a yeah to the went too far question, you definitely don't have a confession and probably don't have a real admission. After you get your first admission, reward it. Sidestep to talk about other things for a minute or so. Above, I talk about forgiveness. But then come right back in swinging with a question like, did it happen more than 10 times or fewer than 10 times? It was fewer than 10 times, right? I find this more than, less than question helps the suspect on the verge of a confession to take another step towards a full confession without asking too much yet. Once you get to this part, you keep working with the suspect to slowly develop the confession. Work to get information that only he would know. Try to get lots of one-word admissions before you ease into asking for narrative answers from the suspect. I find that in most cases, once the suspect knows they've admitted to their crime with even a small admission, they are likely to be close to telling you as much of the truth as they are willing to have you know. I once asked a friend of mine at my department, What do you do when you're done interrogating? I keep getting stuck in the room talking to the guy. I'll tell you what you do. Get out. Say, hey man, I gotta go grab, grab something. Then get out. I've taken that advice every day since, and it has served me well. What if you don't get a confession? When should you quit? As a matter of theory, don't quit until the person confesses, lawyers up, leaves, or you become convinced of their innocence. It may not seem like it, but I consider all of these to be successful outcomes. I lose when I quit. Sometimes I run out of stuff to say and do quit, but I never feel good about it. I'll type up a robbery, a robbery scenario in the next installment. For now, practice looking sincere while arguing that good things are bad and bad things are good. Please, practice that first paragraph. There is no substitute for directly accusing a person of a crime. If you do it right, you will be surprised to see what people do. I've had them nod, cry, and order me to shoot them in the head. Really. No matter what the suspect does, if you get in there and try, you have an infinitely better chance of getting a confession than those that don't. Follow the steps. You can do this.